Hear the word of the Lord. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it was really, if it really was for nothing. Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you have heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is the word of the Lord. God, You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. Y'all know what today is. The Sunday was what I was thinking first, the day Jesus rose from the dead, but also trunk or treat, right? Trunk or treat, people. Um, I'm excited about it. Uh, we're, we're starting to see ways that... Um, oh, my name's Jonah, by the way. If you're visiting with us, I get easily excited and I can get ahead of myself. Um, so there's all kinds of ways that the community is starting to support this. Like Huber's gave us a sweet deal on apples. So if you're like, I like apples, I like Huber's, they like our trunk or treat apparently. Or they just are a little intimidated by Kristen Gillis who can like put it to them, you know? Um, so we've got Huber's apples, we've got pumpkins from a local farm, uh, 100% all beef hot dogs because we're Americans. Um, and, you know, uh, so one thing, uh, oh, and also last week I kind of gave you guys a hard time because we only had six Trunks signed up. Remember, we had a thousand people saying they were coming on Facebook, which means there'll be more than that. And we had six trunks, so this is going to be a lame trunk retreat. And as of the last service, we have 21 trunks set up now. So good response. It's going to be a party. Yeah. Uh, so I'm excited about that. And th then just like one quick reminder for you guys, especially if you're new here and you're like, what is this trunk or treat thing? It's a special, essentially a Halloween party that we throw in the parking lot. And maybe you're like, Halloween, we're Christians, what's the deal? Uh, so for us, there's some things that churches do to try to get people to come to their church. So the goal of the event is like, maybe more people will come to our church. It's kind of like the field of dreams. If we build it, they will come mentality. And I'm not necessarily opposed to that. Uh, one of the ways that that happens though, so like who's um, awkwardly shift if you are afraid of inviting someone to church, right? Like I said, I say, yeah, right. Thank you. I said, say amen in the last service and everyone was, you know, it's even more uncomfortable. So most of us get nervous to invite people to church. Um, and we get excited if there's a way that we can co-op that responsibility to the church proper, which usually means like the pastor or the staff. So if, if the people we pay to be Christians can do something to get people to come, that relieves me of having to have the uncomfortable conversation. So we look at events like Trunk or Treat as like, maybe if we make Trunk or Treat awesome enough, then everybody in the church will come, or everybody in the community will come to our church. Uh, one, 
If you want people to come to this church or you get excited about more people coming to this church or you look around and you think something worthwhile is happening here and there's someone you wish would, was experiencing that too, you invite them, right? Like that's your responsibility as a Christian. Our primary growth strategy as a church is Christians being Christians. And part of that is you guys inviting folks to come and experience what's happening here. And then when it comes to our events, uh, because there's all kinds of research and data about this, you don't really see a huge uptick in attendance from events. And so if our motivation and the money and the effort is all about getting people to come to the church, it's not a very good use of resources. Uh, where we came down on this, the why we do Trunk or Treat, it came about several years ago, five, six years ago, where we sent some members and deacons through the neighborhood to interview folks and asking questions like, what is it like to live in this neighborhood? What was the best part about living in this neighborhood 10 years ago? This used to be a school, and if you lived in this neighborhood, your child would go to elementary school here, middle school, catty corner to here, and high school right down the street from that. So you'd live here for 20 years, and your kid would walk to school the whole time. Uh, it was kind of this idyllic or middle-class Midwest neighborhood. Uh, and so we were asking, you know, what is... What is it like? What, what do you miss about this place? And one of the recurring themes that we heard was we miss how safe this neighborhood used to be. It used to be a front porch neighborhood. Y'all know what I mean by that, what a front porch neighborhood is? Now most of us live in back deck neighborhoods or backyard neighborhoods where we, we built the fence around our house and then we sit in our backyard and we just hang out with the people we know won't hurt us, right? Where before, we used to sit out in the front porch and just see what there was to see, who was walking around in the neighborhood. And we kept hearing about, we used to be able to send our kids trick-or-treating in the neighborhood. So we used to let them walk around, and then it's this front porch safe neighborhood, and now we can't do that. And so for us as a church, we said, we want to help reclaim this being a safe neighborhood. And if that means one night a year, we give a couple hours where it's safe to be here, then we're going to do that to try to reclaim what this neighborhood used to be. And, and so what we're after tonight is as people come, we get the privilege of help, helping to clarify for them what God is like and what the kingdom of God is like. And this is why we get into petty arguments over hot dogs. Because, you know, what does it say about the kingdom of God if we have cheap imitation things that don't really taste good? You know, that communicates something about what God is like, small ways and big ways. Uh, the best way that we will be able to show them what God is like is by all of you, our, our church members, our church regular attenders, us being Christians to the people that are around here, meaning loving them, caring for them. Uh, simple things, like we're not going to be a pointing church, we're going to be a walking church. And here's what I mean. If you're in the hospitality business, you know what I mean. If someone says, hey, where are the apples? We're not going to say, hey, it's over there on the parking lot where you point it to them, we're going to walk them there because uh, that's an extra step of hospitality and welcoming. You've been someplace new and been totally confused by what's going on and where everything is and how disorienting that can be. So let's make sure that we're a church that's welcoming tonight, uh, that gives, it's just think about what, what would it communicate, what would you do if you really felt like you had the opportunity to show people what God was like by the way you interacted with them. So that's the goal for tonight. Maybe people will come to church or not, but that's not what we're after. We, we want to give folks a picture of what life with God is like. All right? I didn't mean to say any of that, but I just got excited about Trunk or Treat. Um, so, uh, awesome. Also, these next couple of weeks, we're in the book of Galatians, again, if you're visiting with us, and chapter three is hugely important um, in the series, but also in tying together uh, some major themes of the Bible. Uh, it's, it's a great place if you've ever been confused by the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. You ever heard that conversation? It was like, I just don't know what to do about the God of the Old Testament. And we set up this system where it's like there's, there's two different gods. And I, I think what's going on in Galatians 3 is one of 
uh, the most important, most essential truths and explanations of what's going on, maybe in the entire Bible. And so on, on Right Now Media, there's going to be things that we can't talk about or get into specifically with the law, but we've got some videos that I think will be really helpful on our, the theology channel of Right Now Media, one in particular that explains um, what the purpose of the law is, this, the 600 plus rules in the Old Testament. And so you can get on your Right Now Media account and check that out. And if you're like, what is Right Now Media? It's essentially Netflix Bible study that we give to everybody who wants it. There's just 14,000, is that the number? More every day. It's more than 10, less than 20,000 videos. So you have plenty of things to go do that. And if you want to know how to get your free account, stop by the welcome table on your way out. But I would encourage you to spend some time. It's a short video, uh, which will do, I, I think it'll be helpful as we get ready for the next few weeks. Because again, I think, you know, in our, in our day, there's lots of debate or you hear different perspectives on what's the core issue of Christianity? What, will the, what are the Christians supposed to be about? And since like the 80s, that's, that's become lots of cultural issues. You know, so we're going to fight over this issue or that issue, or that, that's like where we'll take the stand, some moral issue or sexual issue, it seems to be. Uh, as, as far as I can tell, looking out over the history of the church, and in Galatians in particular, there's a much, a much more fundamental issue and that is our understanding of the relationship between the gospel of Jesus and the law of God. What, what do these two have to do with one another? Or maybe another way to put it is, what must I do to enter and grow in, into the kingdom of God? Um, and it's, it's kind of, I love the way chapter 3 starts. Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Uh, so, you know, that's probably, that's a pretty tame Translation there, foolish, that's probably the softest you can make this word. He's basically saying, you idiots, um, or you ignorant people, or you're people whose brains don't work. Like, it's, it's pretty strong language. And then, you know, for those of us who read fantasy novels, we get excited about bewitched, right? <laughs> um, or your translation might say, who's cast a spell on you? Uh, and I don't know if we should read this as the Bible claiming that magic is real, though we can hope, right? Um, but let's think about what we know about spells for a second. Spells are somebody exerting some degree of influence and control over you to make you do things you wouldn't normally want to do, right? Think of mind control. Where are my conspiracy people at? You know, the mind control, the government is doing all that kind of stuff and making you, and they're faking this and all that, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, that's the, there's some kind of spell being cast on you. So whatever, whatever this issue is that Paul wants to talk about here, he's saying, one, you're being an idiot by the way you're living and believing. And two, it's as if someone has cast a spell on you. And it comes down to the issue of what do you say the gospel is? How do you become a Christian? How do you grow as a Christian? And I've been thinking about this a lot. And what's it mean to be under a spell? Or, or how do you know? And here's how, here's how it's worked out for me. So I've had a pretty good life, I'll, I'll be honest. And I feel guilty about it most of the time, right? Like, my parents stayed married. I had a good house, a good education. I was never really scared of things that you're supposed to be scared about growing up. Like, I was never worried for my own safety. I was scared about things like, what if a tornado comes and the roof collapses? Or you know, ridiculous, irrational things that nine or 10-year-olds get scared of. And I remember people saying to me things like, oh man, you were born on third base. And I didn't really understood what that meant. It basically means you've had life easy and you're almost home. 
In other words, you better make do with what you've got. Like, not everybody has these advantages that you've been given. And, and so because I had most of my material needs taken care of growing up, I spent a lot of time, I was overly curious as a child, which has continued into adulthood, and I just think about everything, and I wonder about everything. And because I didn't have any immediate needs in front of me, I spent all this time thinking about, so what's it all for? If I was born on third base, what's it all for? I have to have some grander meaning in life, some purpose in life to make all of this worthwhile because if I fail, and no one ever told me this, I just made sense of it. If I fail and blow it, then I'll have wasted my life and I'll have wasted all that my parents did and sacrificed for me. And I became like a very wound up, confused, anxious 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 year old. I thought I had my first heart attack at 10. Maybe you've heard me talk about this in sermons before. And I would just spin up laying in bed trying to figure out how big is the universe. And so I was constantly worried about figuring out how to do life right. Uh, kind of against my will, I got forced to go to this Christian youth camp thing, which I was 0% excited about. Um, I wouldn't have called myself a Christian, and I wasn't really excited about Christians. And one of the nights, somebody explained sin to me. And I'd never thought about this before um, or tried to define it. And they said, you know, life is, sin in essence is when we decide to live life apart from God. We do, we think, we say things that don't please God. And so we live life on our own ways, by our own means. And we're, we're trying to figure something out that is unable for us to figure out because we're not the author of life and we've turned our backs on the author of life. And I remember re- hearing that and thinking, that's why I'm so confused. This makes perfect sense. I'm trying to figure out something that somebody else has already figured out. I'm just not listening to him. And then in the wisdom, these camp counselors let us sit with that overnight and into the next day. And they talked about how that makes us worthy of judgment, how we bring pain and suffering into our lives by living disconnected from God. And I just felt so helpless and so confused and so anxious, right? That's like, those are the big themes of my first, you'll see in a second, first big chunks of my life, confusion, anxiety, worry. And I said, what am I going to do? I'm in it. I'm, I stand condemned before God. The next night, they explained to us the cross of Christ. Yes, you stand condemned before God, but God has taken all the punishment you owe, and he's laid it on Jesus so that in Jesus, you can be reconnected with God. You can learn how to live life again. You can be restored into fellowship with God. And it was like someone sparked a match in my soul, and I was like, that is it. That is what I've been looking for. All of a sudden, all the pieces came together, and it was just like, I felt the gears of my life lock into place. And I was like, that is it. And I was the kid that came home from youth camp and people were like, what happened to you? Who are you? And I went around telling everybody, it's Jesus. Let me try to explain this. And I was you know, doing my young evangelism thing. And within six months, I had no friends. No one would talk to me. And I was... So I can remember though, that summer, I remember distinctly thinking upstairs in my bed, uh, Christianity is what I will be good at. So I was trying to figure out life before coming to Jesus. I got to make a name for myself. I got to do something. I got to figure it out. And whatever that is, then I'll run hard after it so I don't waste my life. I hear this message of salvation by grace. And my response is, I'm going to get good at that. And I'm going to run hard at that for the rest of my life. And in essence, I learned to be a Christian the same way I was trying to be a confused teenager. I was doing the same stuff. I, I just had different language for it now. Or I, I just changed lanes on the highway, driving the same car the same way. Um, as the years dragged on, I saw how much deeper my sin went than I thought. Especially, so if you're a new Christian here, it's obvious what you need to stop doing, right? Like, you've got to stop sleeping around with someone you're not married to. You've got to stop getting drunk. You've got to stop whatever it is. You know, like there's things that just aren't healthy for you, and you know that. 
So you, most of you, if you're a Christian for three, four, five years, you'll stop most of those things. Uh, the Spirit will work inside of you, and those things will be put down in your life. And you'll find you're worse than you were before, right? You'll see that your sin goes deeper. There's, there's radical inconsistencies in our lives. So for me, I tried even harder. I went to more accountability groups. I spent more time in prayer. I spent more time in Bible study and Bible memorization. And I found myself in my mid-20s even more exhausted, more anxious, and wondering, what had I done wrong? I better figure this out because I really want to be good at this thing. See, I get, I get very curious around the irrational things in our lives. Um, why did I come to Jesus? I was anxious and confused and tired. At 15, how pathetic is that? And I spent the next 10 years making myself even more anxious and confused and tired. You know, it's like... Why are you doing that? So what do I mean by irrational inconsistencies? Do you know the things in your life that you wished you didn't do, that you feel bad about doing, and that you're pretty sure you're going to keep doing it? The things in your life that you hate, that you wish you would stop, and yet you don't stop. What, what's going on there? That's what I think being under a spell looks like. You're doing something that makes no sense. Your eyes are fixed somewhere that you know that they shouldn't be fixed. It's as if you have no power to control the things in your life. I had a version of Christianity where you were saved one way and then you grew another way. You're saved by grace and then it's up to you to go and get to work. And I think nearly every one of us are under the spell to various degrees. And now maybe we wouldn't say if you don't work hard enough or if you don't do enough, it's maybe you wouldn't necessarily go to hell but God's probably going to be angry and disappointed in you. And man, it's, I would hate to guess a percentage of how many of us walk around most of the time feeling like God is disappointed in us or frustrated with us or just wishing that we would do a little bit more. This has been a common belief and practice in Christianity, and it's been so since day one. This is what is happening here in Galatians. This verse, this chapter in particular, you're saved by grace, but now you grow by the law. Jesus saved you from the law, but then you better go back and obey the law if you really want to do this thing right. And by the law, when Paul's talking about it here, he's talking about the 600 plus rules in the first five books of the Old Testament. 613, give or take how you want to read a couple of them, right? Like a whole bunch of rules. That's what we're saying when he talks about the law. So Paul here is addressing the issue of how we grow as Christians, and what he shows us is that the way we become Christians is the way we grow as Christians. In other words, the gospel of Jesus is how we enter the kingdom of God and how we grow up into it. So let's go back to that verse again. You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Who's cast a spell on you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. So we've already talked about foolish and bewitched a bit. Uh, what's interesting, especially if you're familiar with any of the history of Galatians or you've read the New Testament some, this whole idea of before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Um, he, he wasn't. Um, some of your translations will say you clearly saw him as crucified. And the Galatians weren't eyewitnesses to the crucifixion of Jesus. So what's, this, what's, this go, what's going on here? Um, I don't have time to get into all of the examples of this, but if, and if you want them, I'll email them to you. Just send me an email. Uh, if you... If you go through the pages of the scriptures, you'll find that when the Bible starts talking about knowledge that goes deep into the heart, kind of the core of who you are, it'll begin talking about sensory language. 
Um, and, and so, for instance, when Job stands before a tornado, it says he saw God, or some ways he saw the face of God. It's like, well, he saw a tornado, but he, he experienced something profound. He didn't literally see this face. What Paul is saying here is like, how could you guys be so dumb? It's like someone's cast a spell on you. You felt this was true in your hearts. Like, you experienced this, uh, that Christ was crucified. You experienced this deep in the core of who you are. It's like the youth camp experience, right? Like, you were there. Your soul was set on fire. You came back on fire for Jesus. You knew this in your heart. So this is describing head knowledge that's moved down into heart knowledge, right? Like, they knew this thing. So he's saying, how could you be so dumb? And from here, he asks a series of questions where he's not really anticipating an answer. It's obvious, but he's, he's hammering down this inconsistency, this spell that they've fallen under. He says, did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you've heard, right? Is this a gospel of works or a gospel of grace? Is it because you followed all the rules or because you believed what we told you? Are you so foolish? There's that word again. After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you've heard? This is another way of him saying, who do you think's in charge here? Is all of this happening because of you or is this happening because of what God's decided to do? Is God doing something wonderful here because you guys have finally figured out how to do church or because God is gracious and merciful, right? Are you saved because you followed all the rules and cleaned your life up or are you saved because God has been gracious to you? You think you start one way and finish another is what Paul is saying. There's all kinds of relapses that he's referring to, uh, you know, where you fall back into your old way of doing life, like what I did. I, I, I ran good on the gospel of grace for a few weeks, and then in, in pursuit of becoming good at being a Christian, I went back and did life the same way that I did before I was a Christian. This is what Paul is talking about here. Jesus saves you by grace, but then you go back and do the very works he saved you from? Like the next few weeks, we're going to talk real specifically about the purpose of the law and what is going on with that. So here's just a teaser. Here's the teaser trailer for the next few weeks in Galatians 3. The purpose of the law, at, at least in huge part, was to show us that we need grace. It was to show us that if we're going to get saved, help must come from the outside. Or as my favorite prophet, the prophet Jonah would say, salvation belongs to who? That's right. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You know, this isn't an Old Testament versus New Testament idea. We're going to talk about Abraham here in a second. Like, this has been the idea from the beginning. If we are to be rescued, it will come from the outside, not from the inside. And like, please, let's not be so dumb as to, and I can say that because the Bible just said it, right? Let's not be so foolish to think that we can obey our way into salvation. Like, let's not be that ignorant of the Bible. One rule, don't eat that tree. This is God saying, just remember, it's my garden, right? It's, it's, this is my deal. They couldn't do that. God says 10 rules, which on the surface aren't that tough, right? Don't kill anybody. For a lot of us, that's not a tough one to follow. We can't follow the 10 rules. Do you honestly believe that God, seeing failure with one, failure with 10, was like, I know what they need, 613. <laughs> do you think that God ever intended that we would keep the law perfectly as a way of earning our way to salvation. He wanted to so overwhelm us with the rules that we would say, well, if this is going to work, I'm going to need to be saved. If there's any hope for me, it's going to come from grace, 
not from what I can do or what I can muster. So why would God save you by grace only to make you grow through the very thing he used to show you you need grace? And that was kind of complicated what I just said, right? Why would God save you from the law only to obligate you to keeping the law, right? They began by the Spirit here, and now they're trying to grow by human effort. So the the spell that so many of us will fall under, some of you are under it right now, that I've fallen under many times, is is thinking that we continue differently than we begin. We hear a gospel of grace, of unconditional love and acceptance, and maybe that's enough to get us into church. And then we think that to continue, we have to work hard and do something important or wonderful, Paul gives us this beautiful picture from one of the oldest stories in the Bible. He's showing us this is a consistent message from beginning to end about how does this fit together? How does this work? And so he says, consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So this credited here, this is cool. This is an accounting word. It's like he got a deposit in his account, right? You have the money's in the bank. It's not a promise, it's not a hope. It's like, now you, your standing is different. You've got different cash in the bank. And do you notice that it says he believed God? It doesn't say he believed in God. Like, let people from Indiana understand what I mean here. Just because you're born here or you believe in some generic abstract concept of God doesn't mean that you're a Christian. Like, maybe one of the, the most helpful things you could do or big takeaways from today is when you leave to be honest enough with yourself to say, maybe I'm not a Christian. Like because, just because you come here doesn't make yourself a Christian. Just because you have a cheesy, cool, I had to say that, I guess, because I didn't want to be offensive. Just because, you know, those Christian artwork things you buy at Hobby Lobby, like with a, it's got a verse on it. Just because you've got a verse on your wall doesn't mean that you're a Christian. Just because you celebrate Christmas, just because, I don't know, you're a white Republican who's lived in Floyd County your whole life, like all of these things where I've just been shocked how everyone here seems to think they're a Christian. And I find it fascinating that Paul doesn't say Abraham believed in God. He, he took it a step further than that. He heard a message from God and Abraham believed what God said. He, ex- he explains what this means. The scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles. That's, if you're here and you're not ethnically Jewish, that's you. He would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. The scriptures foresaw that God would welcome us home by faith and announce the gospel to Abraham in advance. What did he say? All the nations will be blessed through you. Now, think about if you're Abraham here for a second. Um, that's not the fullness of the gospel, right? All nations will be blessed through you. Uh, But put yourself in Abraham's shoes. At one point, God told him he'd have more descendants than there are stars in the sky. This is a guy who doesn't have any kids and he's getting a little old, right? Uh, And God says, you're gonna have more descendants than there are stars in the sky. Also, everybody on earth will be blessed through you. As he's, you know, a farmer out in the middle of nowhere, So what is the gospel that's being proclaimed there? All the people of the earth will not be blessed by their achievement. Do you see that? They'll be blessed through you. All nations will not be blessed through their obedience to some new set of rules. It's not about performance here. It's about inheritance. Someone will come from you 
And through that, they will be blessed. Not because of what they do, but because of someone who will come from you. So he doesn't just believe that God exists. He takes this promise and then lives like it's true. He believes what God says to him. He took the words that God said to him, and then he lived according to them. That's the invitation and the tension of the Christian life. Hear what God has to say and live like it's true. At least strive to learn to live like it's true. What does it mean? Let's, I want to break this down a little bit more. To believe as Abraham did. To not just say there is a higher power or God exists. Even if you say God exists in his name is Jesus. Uh, first and foremost, what it means to believe God like Abraham did is to receive the gospel. Like We have so much more information than Abraham did about God's plan, about God's plan of salvation, about the gospel itself. And Paul explains this all the time over and over in the book of Galatians because most of us feel real comfortable living under a spell. You know, you go back and do the crazy stuff that's been normal to you your whole life and we start trying to do something different and we all start freaking out and it's almost like we, we ask for the slavery back again. And so Paul keeps reminding us of what the gospel is. And so this is from last week. He says, we too have put our faith in Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. That's the gospel. How are you made right with God? How are you reconciled? with God. Believe that through faith, we're brought home. Believe that there's nothing more required of you. Believe God by believing that you are made right with him through faith in Jesus. As Paul said last week in chapter 2, trust in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. So to put it another way, it's not your attainment that makes you right with God. It's Jesus's atonement that makes you right with God. You're saved by faith in Christ, nothing more, nothing less. And that, I, I'd be happy to have some disagree with, you, with me on this, but in my opinion, that is the only way out of a life of anxiety and hiding, a life of fear and exhaustion and slavery, is by believing that you are made right with God through faith in Christ, nothing more, nothing less. Um, now, the, where it gets more tricky is by believing that we're agreeing to learn a new way of being me, a new normal, um, a new way of not living under a spell. And so there's a, there's a reception of this information that is true, but then we have to begin the process of living as though it were true. Now, if the gospel is true and we receive it, we have to learn what tempts us away. Every one of us has some issue, deep profound belief about ourselves or about the world, and we look around trying to figure out who will save us. Um, we functionally cry out, save me. So, like, no one, again, no one ever told me I'd be a failure and waste my life if I didn't amount to something or do something flashy or change the world. I learned to believe that about myself, though. And so if I was a failure, then I wasted my life. So I had to be good at something to show that I've done something important. And I ran from thing to thing to try to be good at it so I would have this offering to give to God and my parents and my world to say, look, it's worthwhile that I'm alive. It makes sense that I'm here. I bring value to this game. Like, I, you just shouldn't be as tired as I was at 25, 26, 27. To receive the gospel requires that you also learn how to rest in the gospel, to look at the 
the places where you're striving to prove yourself or you're, you're trying to hide. And you have to learn to lay that down in an act of faith that Jesus loved you and gave himself up for you. What is it that you think will settle your soul and satisfy you? What is the hook you want to hang your hat on at the end of the day? Like here's where the gospel gets really uncomfortable for us good moral Christian people, is it tells us if, if we're safe based on God's love for us in Christ and nothing else, then on your best day and on your worst day, you go to bed and God is smiling at you. It, it doesn't matter what you've done in that day, God's posture towards you isn't changed. And we'll get to spend the rest of our lives wrestling with whether or not we're willing to believe that. What is it that you think will settle your soul and satisfy you? What is it that you think you need to do, achieve, or become to be worthwhile and valuable? Rest in the gospel by seeing that those things are lying to you, that you are good enough, that you are worthwhile enough right now, not because of your achievement, but because you belong to God in Christ. You became a Christian by believing the gospel, and to grow, we must continually return to the gospel. This is what's true, and I'm learning to live in light of that. It's another way, I think, you rest by laying it down, and then I think, you know, you can learn to rely on the gospel functionally by then moving forward as though it were true. And, and so listen, like, if, if you believe that you are as bad as the gospel says you are, and as loved as the gospel says you are, how much more freedom would we walk around with? There's all kinds of ways to think about this. What would you do if you didn't have to spend so much energy hiding and managing your image, right? Micromanaging what other people think about you and how you say, and how would you argue differently with your spouse if you really believed that you were probably wrong, right? Or at least there was an option. For some of you, that's not even on the table that you might really actually be wrong. Listen, consider Abraham. He heard God, he believed God, and then he lived like what God said was true. If, if you rely on your achievement to save you, you will chase it endlessly like the wind, and you'll likely die lonely, angry, and exhausted. If you rely on Jesus to save you, you can learn to be whoever it is God made you to be. And so maybe the simplest way to put it is he says you're safe and loved now, period. If you believe that, What's something small you would do differently tomorrow? I, like, if you're willing to be wrong, maybe you would go and apologize to somebody. So y'all be doing dumb stuff, right? Like, we're humans. Wherever humans go, people do what people do. So there's people in here who are hurt. Maybe you need to talk to your spouse on the way home. I, like, what, what would you do differently if you really believed that you were safe, secure, loved, period? What would you stop doing if that were true? What would you start doing if that were true? If you have an answer to that, I would take whatever that is as an invitation from God. Be like Abraham. Believe that. I, I found that you know, one of the only ways we get to experience the gospel deep in our souls and it becomes true is when we learn to start living like it's true. And I don't know that we can, I don't know that we can do that just by thinking about it. So what's something small that you could do if this were true? If you didn't have to hide, what could you do? What would you do? and see what happens as you step out in faith. Every week, we come back to the central message of the gospel because it's the way we get into life with God, and it's the way we're sustained by life with God. And it's, this, it's so beautiful, you guys. I, I hope it never grows old for us. So Jesus takes a loaf of bread, and he breaks it and says, this is my body broken for you. You see what he's done to something ordinary? How many loaves of bread did you see this week? 
How many loaves of bread? Probably 1,007 if you went grocery shopping, right? Like, it's one of the most normal things, even if you don't eat it. It's one of the most normal things in our society. And he says, now, whenever you see this, I want you to remember my body was broken for you. Your body should have been broken. Because I love you, my body will be broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine, which in their day was one of the most common drinks. It was at every meal. And he says, whenever you see wine, I want you to remember my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. So what? feel free to get as uncomfortable as you're willing to let the gospel make you here. What makes you right with God? What seals your relationship with God? What empowers you to step out of hiding and live free is the blood of Jesus shed for you. It's over and it's done with, which means you are free. You're as free as you're willing to believe you are. To what degree are you willing to believe that it's the blood of Jesus shed for you that secures your place with God? So let's come and be rooted in this again. Let's fix our eyes, point our hearts to this, and let's go learn to live like it's true. Uh, Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward, rip off a piece of bread, dip it in wine or juice. Uh, Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it, and there'll be gluten-free elements to my left, your right. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, let's come celebrate as we're ready. Let's pray.